Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey Hotfish and Knockreiner. Uh, okay, I get it. On today's episode, <laughs> we'll be covering a, I'm going to go ahead and call it archaic, a web server framework that was exploited to targeting a couple of government agencies. Uh, before that, we'll go over two relatively serious vulnerabilities, one impacting just about every Bluetooth device under the sun, and the other one impacting just about every Windows or Linux computer under the sun. With that happiness... No big deal. Let's go ahead no big deal. Let's go ahead and roll our way in. Man, that's boring. <laughs> How do you... What does fusion in... Let's go uh, slam particles our way in? I don't know. Find our atoms together way in? <laughs> Use our way in? What, what, shoot atoms at the speed of light our way in? As you can tell, Corey and I are not nuclear scientists. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm lucky to know that fusion and fission are opposites. Or not the same, at least. <laughs> <laughs> So let's start this week with what I think is actually one of the biggest vulnerabilities of the year, I'd go so far as to say, Corey. Do you think you agree with me on that one? Oh, for sure. Especially when you learn how, how easy it is and how used the protocol is. Yeah. So diving right in, uh, last week, a security researcher named Mark Newland, who's got a bit of a history with researching Bluetooth-related vulnerabilities. Uh, published some information about a Bluetooth keystroke injection vulnerability in Android, Linux, macOS, Windows, and technically iOS as well, too. Uh, the flaw is an authentication bypass vulnerability in basically the implementation of the standard itself that could allow an attacker to connect to a discoverable Bluetooth host uh, without the user confirming, and then inject keystrokes. And so you could imagine in an attack scenario, you could connect their fake little keyboard and then just start typing in commands to run in terminal or command prompt or whatever. Um, and you mentioned pretty... a guy named Mark. Mark found it, and he has yeah. more detail in his own GitHub. And I think it's very similar to like a USB device. There's many types of USB devices, wireless cards, network cards, storage devices, keyboards. But if you, we've all known about USB ducky type things where a USB device kind of emulates a human interface device like a keyboard. So this is Bluetooth, entirely different, but because Bluetooth is also an input-output mechanism for things like keyboards and storage devices and headphones, it feels very similar to that type of situation, right, Mark, where it's uh, one device pretending to be another type of device, but if it's a keyboard, bam, you, you have a lot of control. Yeah, he hasn't given all the details yet about the vulnerability. I think they're saving them for a uh, future talk at an uh, industry conference. Um, but they did give us some little tidbits. So it abuses a, a mechanism in the Bluetooth standard called unauthenticated pairing, uh, which is supposed to be used for devices that don't have any input or output capabilities, meaning they can't authenticate themselves when they're connecting. Um, so you can make a bit of a logical assumption here that 
a fake or the little attacker keyboard could advertise itself as one of these devices that only supports unauthenticated pairing. And then once it's paired, it starts acting as a human interface device, as you called it, or a keyboard. Um, so they first disclosed this vulnerability back to all the affected parties, and there are many of them, uh, back in August of this year. Um, most of the vulnerable implementations have been fixed by now. And so this is their first kind of responsible disclosure of the issue. To give you some examples, um, it's been patched in Android, at least versions 11 through 14, as of December 5th. If you're on Android 4.2 through 10, you are SOL, as they say, when it comes to this flaw. Uh, most Ubuntu versions were tested and found vulnerable as well, too. Um, most uh, recent macOS variants were vulnerable in a very specific circumstance, which is kind of interesting, in that you had to have connected a magic keyboard to the computer uh, in order to be vulnerable to this uh, particular Yeah, I feel attack. like uh, laptops and phones are probably immune because unless you have a really crappy laptop, Mac laptop that had that butterfly keyboard issue where you would have paired an external keyboard, you probably just use your laptop keyboard. And I don't know that many people that seem to connect their phones to the magic keyboard, even though it's possible. But I think desktops and iPads on the flip side, they get magic keyboard connections relatively regularly. So I, I do like this caveat because Android fanboys can't give me a hard time. I wonder who those are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a fanboy. It's just Android is superior to iPhone. So that's why I use it. <laughs> It is but uh, you, you do have to have paired a magic keyboard at least once. It's definitely yeah. cheaper, not less and expensive, cheaper. The vulnerabilities have been <laughs> fixed, to be clear, in macOS and iOS. Yes. So if you're on 14.12 for macOS or 17.12 for iOS, you've got the fixes for these vulnerabilities now, too. But, Random so thing is yesterday like was... Apple patch or today was Apple patch mm -hmm. day along with Microsoft. So there was a crap load of Apple updates. If you're an Apple user, you should definitely get them all. Sorry, yeah. Mark. Uh, but so if you're running a, an older version of Android, though, well, I guess first off, let's focus on Android for a second, because for all of its benefits, and there are many of them uh, over iOS, Android has some flaws in that it's not a closed ecosystem like Apple, where they control the hardware and the software, meaning Apple can be pretty dang quick about putting out even quick hot fixes for security vulnerabilities if they're critical or not. Whereas Android, typically the, the software update comes through the telco itself. So for example, I've got T-Mobile and in order for me to get a software update on my phone, it goes through T-Mobile to make sure they package in all their bloatware and crap in it first. And then it makes its way to my phone and that delays the security update. It also means that after a certain number of years, I just straight up don't get updates on my device anymore too. Now, being a Samsung one, that's longer than it used to be when it was on other versions. But in the Android ecosystem, what I'm getting at is you could have a phone that's only two to three years old uh, and it may no longer receive security updates at all. And in this case, with Android 10 and older, as it stands right now, you are not going to get a security update for this vulnerability. And we tend to think, or at least I don't want to speak for you, but I'm going to. Um, we tend to frame mobile device usage under the lens of you know, the United States and most of Europe, and that we tend to use more powerful, latest and greatest, whatever. In other parts of the world, 
Like Android is extremely popular, way more popular than iOS, but it's typically older devices and older operating systems, meaning things like this will stick around for a long time and potentially just not get patched at all. Which is why I think that this vulnerability in Bluetooth that affects all Android devices up to uh, 11.x is going to be a pretty major flaw in terms of like actual attack surface across the world. And that's just talking about people that who want to patch that can't because either it's an older Android device or a telco delayed patch. The truth is we know there are plenty of people that even when updates like this come out for Windows and Mac that they don't get them until a lot later. So yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it'll stick around for a while. And the fact that it's a over the air, unauthenticated, no user input required type of remote full compromise, it just makes it a huge freaking flaw period. And people, by the way, let's talk about distances. Uh, yes, Bluetooth is limited compared to Wi-Fi, but you and I have gone to DEF CON and know all about blue blue sniping. Uh, you can't go with the miles and miles that you can with Wi-Fi, but you can actually get hundreds of yards with Bluetooth if you have the proper equipment. So Proper equipment being a wire wrapped around a Pringles can in some situations. Yeah, yeah, a, a Yagi antenna, although the... The people that go in the sniping competition get really extra fancy with it and try to amplify signals in other ways beyond just the, the smart antenna. So yeah, it's it's yes, you're limited by range, but I, I would expand the range a little further than you think Bluetooth goes. And speaking of like Black Hat and DEF CON, this is one where I do feel like the attack surface for this guy at DEF CON is going to be pretty big oh yeah turn your bluetooth off for sure if this happened i i think even when we go to it eight months or eight or nine months from now it's going to be a big deal for some people who haven't patched but if this happened during black hat man no bluetooth allowed and it's a it's a tough one too because i mean bluetooth at least on android i don't know how it works on ios but there's some interesting like behavioristics i've noticed with it, uh, specifically around my car. So I've got Android Auto in my car. Um, when I go hop into my car, turn it on, my phone will automatically connect and it becomes my, um, what do you call it, like entertainment system on my car. As part of that, even if I have Bluetooth turned off, it turns it back on as soon as I power on my car. And now it's on as oh, soon lovely. as I step out again. And so like, even if you go out of your way to like reduce your own attack surface by disabling Bluetooth, just by using your device, it may re-enable it. And if you haven't been updated to the latest version, you could not be vulnerable to this attack without really even knowing it. By the way, anything. you just added more attack surface that we didn't explicitly. I, I mean, I think we might be thinking of the phones we're using in our car with the Bluetooth Connect, but that entertainment, I, I believe a lot of car entertainment systems are Linux systems and probably have normal Linux Bluetooth drivers. And then you expand to all the other IoT, like the little projectors that have Bluetooth that are standalone smart devices. And also, so it's not just the, the Linux, iOS, Mac, and I, et cetera, et cetera. We have to wait for all these IoT devices. Bluetooth is such a commonly used mechanism, and it's going to be the Linux or Android version that's probably used very commonly in these uh, inexpensive IoT devices. I, that's going to take even longer to patch. I mean, I get Good that cars really will at least get at get 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 get
I, that that must have been sarcasm, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you and I, I, I'm pretty darn good at keeping my projector firmware updated, mostly just to get features actually working, let alone security. But I think the average Joe that buys a, a smart projector, like a capsule smart projector off Amazon, probably never updates it past the first install. Does your uh, any of your Facebook Oculus Rift stuff support Bluetooth like headphones or connections to them directly? At Absolutely, all all, all, uh, all of the MetaQuests support Bluetooth. Uh, not a lot of people hmm. they have lag, so the sound and rhythm games suck. But they all support Bluetooth, and one hundred percent, it's an Android device running Java. It's a, a typical Android device. People have gotten used uh, close to rooting the Quest before and the Go. Now the good news is. Like at the end of the day, this vulnerability, it just it basically gives them a unauthenticated keyboard on the device. So for Android specifically, it doesn't give them like root. They're still limited to whatever permissions they would have on that device as a keyboard, which I have to imagine, I hope, on a MetaQuest is pretty dang limited if you were to get one of those yeah, attached. Yeah. They don't they don't let you as a user do much and rooting is a challenge. Yeah. So it could be, I'd say it's more dangerous on like laptops and even just the traditional mobile device, just because the amount of business apps we would have on it, probably less serious on some of the more fun devices like that, like a MetaQuest, but still an interesting area to look into, I guess. I don't know. Have you tried connecting a Bluetooth keyboard to your Quest yet, Corey? Actually, I have. I've done it. It works. Mm -hmm. And I've connected my AirPods, and uh, I'm in ADB. I, I did it specifically because I used to USB. I guess when I USB connect, I can type directly through my terminal. But I used to bring up a little ADB shell. So yeah. a Bluetooth keyboard so does work up the on the shell, Quest. Does it bring it up in the metaverse? And so you can like hack no, the VR? No, you have to. I had to sideload applications that used keyboard. The the normal okay. what do they call their you they they have their own OS on top of Android that they obfuscate so there's no real place for them to I mean the keyboard will work where a virtual keyboard usually pops up that you point at but I was mostly using the keyboard in apps that I sideloaded. Okay, interesting. Either way though, I I do believe this is going to be a pretty big vulnerability at least in terms of more potential research targets. In reality, like we'll see exactly who may end up getting attacked. I'm trying to think of like good targets. I guess like payment card process, like checkout terminals at restaurants. You know, they're basically a oh, that would be lovely. typically a tablet mounted with a Bluetooth card reader onto them. That's a potential target for this if you're trying to, as a threat actor, go after it. I can't I mean, even if you had a normal user with keyboard, if you at least had privileges to install apps like a keyboard sniffing program. There's, yeah. So it, anyway, it be interesting long story short, if you have a device that has Bluetooth on it, uh, make sure you update it if there is a update available as quickly as possible. Uh, this as a side a note for the Android users, as when Mark said it was updated, if you're watching the video version of this, you probably showed saw us scrolling through Google's Android update that included this patch. Do know that update includes like 94 other vulnerabilities, including a lot of critical ones too. So Android users should definitely get the latest version as soon as their telco actually does it, <laughs> unless you happen to be <laughs> running straight from Androids, right, from Google's uh, store. The good news is I already got mine. Thank you, Samsung. 
Um, so Samsung, the one that does Vault, they're usually pretty good, right? They are the, pretty decent, the... for better or worse. Fort Knox, that's what I'm thinking. They yeah. at least add some of their own. They pay attention to security a little bit. Yep. Um, so moving on to the next story. Uh, also last week, researchers at a, a firmware vulnerability analysis company called Binarly uh, published two dozen vulnerabilities in the Unified Extensible fir uh, Firmware Interfaces, or UEFI, uh, that could allow an attacker to execute malicious code during the boot-up sequence well before most security protections like Secure View kick in. Uh, as with any good vulnerability, they gave it a marketing name, in this case, Logo Fail. Um, the vulnerabilities, as you may guess, based off the name, involve processing vendor logos that get displayed during the boot sequence and the boot process. You know, if you've ever restarted your computer, you typically will get the pop-up of the either the motherboard manufacturer or the computer as a whole manufacturer as part of the boot process. And it turns out that the image parsers in UEFI, so BIOS startups from uh, all three independent BIOS vendors or IBVs, contain vulnerabilities that an attacker could exploit by replacing that legitimate logo with one that they've uh, carefully crafted to have exploits for the flaws. And it basically, it makes it possible for them to execute malicious code at the driver execution environment stage of the boot process, which gives it full control of memory, the storage disk on targeted devices, including picking what operating system will run. And it works even when secure boot or Intel boot guard are enabled on there. Um, they describe some proof of concepts in here where they could drop like a second stage malware payload uh, that would drop an executable onto the hard drive before the main operating system is even started. Uh, they pointed out it's relatively trivial to exploit with local access to a system, but they gave some scenarios of remote access where they could, for example, exploit a vulnerability in your web browser or maybe your media parser um, in order to gain code execution and then replace this logo. Now, the good news is it does require at least some permissions in order to access the, the partition on your hard drive that includes the uh, EFI system files. Um, but the bad news is this is a great way for them to evade detection by infecting that part, or at least inserting their malicious code in that part of the, uh, the I partition. would say not a, not a, it, it's almost like any sort of master boot record type of flaw to not only evade detection because your, your normal endpoint security products aren't really going to be looking at, at this part of your UF, you know, the way your computer boots, but to persist, right? Like even though it might load additional payloads that will do things in your OS and maybe you clean all that crap up, as long as the malicious boot image is there, every time you reboot, it has an opportunity to persist and reload itself. So even cleaning it, I mean, besides not being able to find it, even cleaning it is more involved. The thing I first think of is Lojax back in 2018, that Russian military uh, allegedly developed uh, UEFI rootkit that was making its rounds around. Yeah. Um, extremely difficult to detect and prevent against because like, it's not like your EPDR software runs during your BIOS boot up sequence. Um, now, there's some interesting little, like, I guess not necessarily caveats, but some interesting features about ex actually exploiting this. So, BootGuard, 
uh, has a feature that can make BIOS logos non-modifiable, um, but it's not actually always configured. And even if it is configured, uh, they found that you can just use the BIOS manufacturer's own like flashing utility to reflash the firmware with your own malicious uh, image file for the logo and get around that protection. Because at the end of the day, like the typically the firmware itself, the UEFI firmware, is cryptographically signed, but the logo that you include with it for the boot process is not. And so you can just edit that firmware update package, leave in the legitimate UEFI firmware, uh, but then replace the logo, reflash it, and now you've gained rootkit level per, uh, persistence on that host. Um, this isn't also the first vulnerability to abuse image parsing in UEFI. There was a 2009 Black Hat presentation on the topic as well, too. Um, but like this is, I think, like you said, Corey, I, I'm expecting this to become another tool in like nation state adversaries, or at least relatively sophisticated threat actors, where they're not just trying to compromise the system, they're trying to do it stealthily and in a way that uh, makes it difficult to remove them. Yeah, it so. seems like a great tool for lateral movement and hiding. So definitely something more evasive threat actors will use. The initial infection of the system might be different, but this will be something they do to, to hide for a long time, persist, and not be noticed. Yep. And some good news totally on this agree. one. It uh, doesn't affect, obviously, devices that don't use UEFI uh, for bootloading. So think like mobile devices. Um, I think even Mac OS technically has its own um, bootloader instead of using something like this. So it's going to be primarily the Windows and Linux-based systems. I would keep an eye out, though, for updates for your UEFI or BIOS, whatever you want to call it, for your computer from your manufacturers. I have to admit, that's one thing that, aside from like my Asus like ROG Ally handheld thing, I don't typically update my BIOS firmware that frequently on my Windows computer, even though I probably should. And I think this is a good example of why even some of these really low-level system updates are ones you need to pay attention to and stay up to date on. I will say I've been gaming more on my Steam Deck or ROG Ally, and they come with utilities that are very good at making me notice BIOS updates more. And because the Ally has all kinds of SD card reader issues, I'm always on to the BIOS updates. But I did just notice the Ally after just receiving a BIOS update literally like a week ago, I got another one yesterday. So don't know for sure, yep. but yeah. Uh, on normal desktops that I'm not gaming on, I think you're right. I don't necessarily uh, go to my motherboard program that's running and, and see if they have an update as often as I should. But at least gaming computers, you might be used to doing it because uh, some of at least the modern new portable ones have enough bugs sometimes that you always want to get that latest boot, the, the latest uh, bootloader. More security advice from Nerds Incorporated. Um, so, <laughs> moving on to the, like the to last news. Oh, yes, Corey? They like to what? I was just going to say, the, the, the clear thing with gaming is they sometimes want to unlock CPU and memory speeds, which is why people pay attention to the BIOS a lot as gamers, is you always have to go into BIOS if you really get into gaming tweaking. And I think the portable systems do it even more because they're already running low resource. So to try to get the fastest FPS for their tiny little systems on a chip that uh, 
they actually maintain the BIOS pretty good. I definitely need the most frames for playing Stardew Valley on my handheld basis. Stardew system, Valley, that's for sure. You're you're doing <laughs> lovely retro gaming that you could probably do 4K on that system. Meanwhile, I'm the idiot that's trying to play Starfield, <laughs> even at 30 frames per second on my portable gaming system. <laughs> yeah, I gave. That I need I need the frames. You're probably good. That's yep. true. That's exactly what happens. <laughs> Anyways, back to security topics. Uh, the last story for this week, uh, earlier this month, actually, so I guess about a week and a half ago, by the time you listen to this, uh, CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency, published advisory AA23-3339A on the topic of describing an event where they found attackers that exploited a vulnerability in Adobe Cold Fusion to gain access to government servers. So pausing here for a second, Corey, uh, Cold Fusion, that thing's still floating around? <laughs> Apparently, I was surprised. I mean, it's essentially a web server. And back when uh, I was the Mark Liberté person and not an executive on a live security team we had, I used to write alerts about the Cold Fusion web server, but I have not heard about it for a decade. So the first thing I thought was, do people still use Cold Fusion? I if guess so. If you're not so. familiar with it? It's uh, basically a competitor to like ASP or JSP or PHP as a server-side scripting uh, for a web server. Uh, I server. looked it up. So according to uh, Sixth Adobe. Sense, the marketing firm, they've got about a 0.07% of market share in their space. So it is still technically around, but not highly used, I'd suppose, but apparently used on at least uh, one federal executive civilian branch government well, I was going to say, if you think about the type of organizations that keep leg legacy product around forever because of budget, I would definitely think of ICS and government. <laughs> so leave it to the government to, to have something super legacy, at least yeah. in my opinion. Hopefully Adobe won't kill me. Do they maintain Cold Fusion in that research? I they guess do. they must. Yeah. Version uh, 2023 just came out in May. And it included support for JSON web tokens, I noticed on the release notes. They finally Oh, wow. JSON web tokens years. are so new. I'm glad that they are early adopters of those. Yeah. Uh, that stood out to me as like advertising that you're adding support for that in the year 2023. <laughs> um, but anyways, it, ha it is still actively maintained. Now, so this vulnerability, CVE 2023-26360, it's a vulnerability in versions uh, up to 2018 update 15 and 2021 update 5, including all older versions, possibly dating back to 1997. Uh, and it, it gives unauthenticated code execution without any user inter interaction on the underlying server. And it was disclosed and patched back in March of this year, uh, but seemingly in June of this year when the incidents first started at these agencies, uh, it, they had not yet updated their systems. Uh, so CISA's report, they named two uh, unnamed uh, FCEB, so Federal Civilian Executive Branch Agencies, uh, that were compromised in their environments between the June and July timeframe. The first incident uh, back out started on June 26th, uh, where after gaining initial access by exploiting the vulnerability, the threat actors then enumerated the web server to look for running processes. They started moving around file artifacts into the public web server directory. They used some living off the land techniques, so they used CertUtil 
to decode a Base64 encoded text file into a JSP web shell that they dropped on the system. Um, they modified the ColibriFusion config to start extracting usernames, passwords, and other data from URLs. They attempted to hide their web shell uh, using the built-in Windows attrib executable, so presumably to change the read permissions on their web shell so other users on the system wouldn't be able to see it. And then they attempted several other file executions, like they tried to run a edge cookie exporter, uh, they, tried, they ran a network scanner, they had a few other malware-related activities on there too. Uh, the second incident started as early as June 2nd, 2023, but carried into July, where after gaining access, they enumerated domain trusts to find lateral movement opportunities by using a few built-in Windows commands like local group, net user, and net user slash domain. They dropped another web shell that they decoded into a JSP web shell. They dropped a remote access Trojan that used a JavaScript-based loader. And they even attempted to exfiltrate some registry files using zip archives along the way too. But those were actually, that activity was blocked by the endpoint protection that was running on the server. Um, For those so, that, I mean, one, one example is SAM is something you can find in the registry as well, but that's where hash, hash passwords would be. Right. Exactly. You can imagine why they'd want to steal that so they could take it back, crack it offline, and then use that to gain credentials on the, uh, the network. Um, the main takeaways that CISA provided are all the things you'd expect. First off, update your Cold Fusion deployment if you've got it running somewhere in your environment. Uh, prioritize remediating vulnerabilities and internet facing systems. They talk a bit on a few bullet points about proper network segmentation, including using just even DMZs for your web servers versus your rest of your production network, deploying web application firewalls, uh, and then enforcing signed software execution policies to help protect Am I right that the cold fusion may not even be your, your main public facing web server with your site? It may be a supporting web server with applications, kind of like a backend mm -hmm. server. So you might even be able to separate your exposed web server to the from the internet to it of course would have to talk to this cold fusion server for certain things, but there's lots of fancy things you could do to have multiple layers of segmentation probably. Lots of lots of unfancy things you could probably do too. Some very basic things to add some network segmentation. Now you could even perhaps get off of cold fusion and onto a modern web server framework <laughs> uh, in order to help protect maybe your, one that uh supported json tokens long ago <laughs> uh, i i always i don't try and throw stones in glass houses but sometimes That's there's true. just slightly too ridiculous things that pop up in uh some products that i go look into for talking about on this podcast and that just happened to be one of them to be fair, I doubt the government employees running the Cold Fusion really want to use it. They probably got it approved 15 years ago and have wanted budget forever, but just aren't getting it. The good news is, like, at least they were running a currently supported version of it. Yeah, uh, I think in it's both not end of life. 2018, which is uh, technically still supported. They weren't running at least older ones. Some of the activities that CISA highlighted, the threat actors even tried to target uh, specific activities that would have worked on older versions. Uh, for example, I guess everything up to version eight uh, had a hard-coded secret for the database that's used within it. 
And so they tried accessing uh, information using that or decrypting files using that secret. Thankfully, it didn't work because they were at least on a relatively newer one. But so at least, you know, hats off to these government agencies for keeping it somewhat up to date, even if they didn't install the patch within two months for this pretty critical vulnerability on an internet facing server. But at least they tried somewhat. Main takeaways, though, if you've got Cold Fusion, make sure you've updated it because threat actors are actively exploiting it out in the wild. Uh, and if you are yeah. using Cold Fusion, maybe it's time to evaluate other functions. Yeah, and there's a few other things in the alert, like web application firewalls. That's probably too fancy for some smaller companies, but uh, even if I do like web application firewalls. If you're running any web server, there could be zero day web application flaws in it all the time. You never know. Uh, web application firewalls can often prevent the exploitation of even unknown vulnerabilities just by kind of better controlling the parameters that are thrown at whatever you're doing on your website. Like if uh, it can tell is... you're asking for a zip code, it will only let zip codes be thrown at that parameter. Or if you're looking for a form field that shouldn't be code or script, it can, anyways, WAFs can help prevent uh, some of these web application flaws, even if they're unknown. Even without going full on into WAF, if you are a WatchGuard customer and you've got a Firebox inspecting HTTPS traffic, which is a requirement and easy to do for inbound connections like this to a web server, uh, the IPS engine on the Firebox does have signatures for this vulnerability and the other suite of high severity vulnerabilities that were patched around that same time frame earlier this year. Yeah, IPS can help. The main difference there yep. is the IPS-based WAF rules like we have are we have to know the vulnerabilities, so we're not going to be able to help with new zero day until shortly after it's known. I mean, we, of course, will get uh, signatures as quickly as possible when we learn new things. But uh, the more proactive WAFs get fancy with just trying to honor the limit of what uh, the web developer really wanted users to input in fields. Yep. And if you are not, if you do maintain a web server uh, and you're not inspecting traffic to that web server, that is something that is trivial to set up compared to outbound yeah. inspection, something you absolutely should do uh, should as do. quickly as possible. Use our proxy okay. manning server-based proxies please please do um what a crazy week and i'm looking forward that's to seeing it, what that's comes just even stories we saw recently there's a ton of other yeah, yeah it's extra crazy for sure job security i guess we won't talk job about security. the world burning faster <laughs> 2023 is almost over man good thing next year is primed to be a, a great and low stress year <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's hope that's at least true for work, Mark. If it can't be in life and politics, maybe it can be for work. We'll do our best. Let's hope. But then again, we do work in cybersecurity. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Which I hear uh, sur latest survey says 50% uh, of companies expect half the budget. <laughs> that's great. More we'll just fire you and deploy more tools. <laughs> Ouch. That's okay. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or su suggestions for future episode topics, do not reach out to us on Twitter because we are not using that. Apparently we're on Instagram now, Corey. 
I, that's what we <laughs> heard. Out to... Crap, but I, I don't actually I have an Instagram handle. on Instagram. How does this work? Reach out to us at WatchGuard, and it will find its way to us. Just reach huh. out to us on X. We'll tell you where on X, but do know we'll have some Instagram names soon. I am at XORRO underscore. Gory is at second app. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast still for the very limited time being. Thanks again for listening. At least we weren't told to go to TikTok. (laughs) At least we weren't told to go F ourselves by Mr. Musk. See you next week.